1: History by the decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winter. Matt, our college years, our early career years, a lot of life lived in this decade. It's the 2000s.
2: Yeah, and I can't wait to get into this because this is our decade, Jeff. This is the best decade we've had so far as Bears fans. And so I'm really excited to talk about these guys and these teams. Yeah, a lot of fun, a couple of very,
1: very fun years that we'll get into. But as always, with each episode, we're starting off with the cocktail of the decade. This was actually the decade in time that I tended bar. So <laughs> unfortunately, the hot drink at the time, the the hot cocktail at the time, was a Red Bull and vodka, which uh, <laughs> that's, that hasn't exactly held up as a, as a great cocktail example. And so most of the drinks that I poured... You know we're like that. You know it's Captain Coke, Jack and Coke, uh, but but Red Bull had just kind of come over from Europe, and it was the hot drink when I was bartending. And what I think is really funny about that drink is that well, one, I just don't drink that drink. That's terrible. But two, it was all of the guys that came into the bar that were clearly like on steroids. They were you know they're just these like huge. Armed, muscle-bound guys that were clearly taking some sort of banned substances to to get to that way, and they were all ordering Red Bull and vodka. And I found that to be really ridiculous. It was a really expensive drink because you had to buy not only the liquor, but you had to buy the the Red Bull, which they you know upcharge at a premium in, in the bar that I worked. at. Oh, of course. What, what I liked about it was that, of course, you know you're working uh, a long shift. You know you're going to be working until two to close, and then you're going to clean up, and you're not going to get home until three, four in the morning. On a long shift bartending, and so about you'd pour about two thirds to three fourths of the Red Bull can into a Red Bull vodka, and then generally the bartender got the rest. And so, oh really? Yeah. So the so you guys were wired all night. It helped me get through a lot of shifts. The the Red (laughs) Bull vodka let me get through a lot of shifts, so that's that's nice. But the the cocktail that I'm going to highlight is actually a resurgence of a classic drink. And it found its renaissance due to a cult classic movie. I think you probably know where I'm going with this one.
2: Uh, I assume it's the Big Leb or the sorry, a White Russian from the Big Lebowski.
1: You are correct. So the in 1998, Coen Brothers comes. They come out with a little flick called The Big Lebowski. It's a personal favorite of mine. I know that you like it a lot. This is the John Goodman as Walter Solchak uh, Absolutely, just shines in this one. The dude, he drinks White Russians through the whole movie calls them a caucasian once which i looked up if there's a difference between white russian and caucasian and i don't think the dude was necessarily using it correctly but it looked like a caucasian might be just kind of a supersized version of a, of a white russian don't, oh, okay don't really get that but anyway the white russian super easy drink to make basically take a glass fill it with some ice you put one part vodka one part kalua or a coffee liqueur of your choice and one part heavy cream poured over the top.
2: Do you drink these still, Jeff? Because I remember drinking a lot of these in college, but since college, I don't think I've... I'm not sure if I've had a White Russian.
1: So I do. I, I keep those ingredients on hand regularly, and every once in a while, it's it's a nice nighttime drink. Mm. And I, I don't keep heavy cream on hand. I better, <laughs> I better make that very clear. I'm not sure who does, but I've used... <laughs> I, I think you can substitute milk here. I haven't had you know, dairy milk in a long time use a lot of non-dairy milks. You know, coconut milk actually works pretty well in something like this okay. gives it a little bit of a coconut flavor that I think actually works pretty well here. I've never used non-dairy creamer like the dude uses in the movie at one point. Seems like that would be a little sketchy, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it could work. And actually I was I want to mention that the way that I make a variant of this is that I get the cream element by using uh, Baileys or some sort of Irish cream.
2: Mm. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so I'll use and and I I I really like Irish cream. So, I'll use a more of a ratio that's like maybe one part vodka to one to one and a half parts Kahlua and then I'll kind of fill it with Baileys. So, it's more like two to three parts Baileys. So, it actually kind of turns into a bit of a strong drink. I, again, if you like just drinking Baileys, you might like to add some Kahlua and a little bit of vodka for a kick. But I've done that a number of times over the years again it's always like late and it's almost like a dessert drink it's like late at night and you're like ah oh, this sounds kind of tasty um it's not really a any sort of strong bitter drink you know i don't want to pour myself a captain and coke or not that i do that in, anymore i don't want to mix up a an old-fashioned or something like that but i want something this kind of scratches that itch
2: have you had a vodka red bull since college <laughs> no i don't
1: i think i only had one like once one time and i was like oh why are people ordering this this is terrible <laughs> uh but definitely drank the red bulls uh, and energy drinks after that and red bull as an energy drink has to be like the, my least favorite I, I don't enjoy that as an energy drink They're, they've come out with better variants since then but try to cut back on those too because those those aren't those aren't very good very anymore. unhealthy for yes us. very unhealthy so Let's get into U.S. history. What what happened during this decade that we needed to know about before we get into Bears football?
2: Well, as good as the 90s were, the 2000s, maybe kind of the flip side of it, we start off with a, a very contested 2000 presidential election. If you remember, Jeff, it was sure. Al Gore versus George W. Bush. The election was not decided for almost a month, and it wasn't until the Supreme Court effectively stops the recount in Florida that George W. Bush becomes president. And about a you know, a year into his first term, we have the, one of the most horrific events in our nation's history of 9/11. And 9/11 leads to fighting in Afghanistan. It later leads to fighting in Iraq, although we learned that those events were not related. And so two wars that lasted throughout the decade. And uh, you know we're still in Afghanistan today and Iraq is not a great place. and so not great parts of our history. You have Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which was a another horrific thing to watch. Uh, yeah. So we're no- noticing a trend here. There, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the decade. Sure. Uh, later in the decade, you have the subprime mortgage crisis. You have the 2008 and the 2009 recession, uh, where unemployment in this country reached double digits. Of course, we're probably there today now in our current pandemic that we're facing, and so not not great times back then. And I think uh, some of the positive things that happened is the election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president. Uh, Internet becomes more and more a part of our lives. In fact, uh, it's tough to imagine our lives now without internet and probably aspects that aren't very good. uh, Social media starts to rise. Reality TV really becomes a part of our culture and a part of what we watch on TV and cell phones, they evolve and eventually we're getting into smartphones by the end of the decade. And so... Definitely develops in technology, but also a, a decade where a lot of bad stuff happens and uh, stuff that we're still facing the effects of today, Jeff.
1: Yeah, we're getting close to current times with the, with this decade. But what about pop culture stuff? I'm I, I was thinking back on the last show and just how important a lot of that pop culture stuff was to us and how. That was the stuff that we grew up with, and a lot of those movies, I, I'm not sure that any decade is going to touch that for our, our thinking, but I'm curious what you came up with for pop culture for this decade.
2: Well, Jeff, I definitely agree with you. The 90s, it was hard to figure out what shows and, and movies to leave off. For this decade, you know, I think for you and I, we're in college, we're busy doing college stuff, we're starting our careers. You and I didn't have a lot of time to sit around and watch a lot of TV, and so... I, I'm not crazy about these lists, but I, I think our audience will appreciate them. So, all right, here you go, Jeff. Here's TV. Okay. Lost, The Office, Sopranos, The Wire, Band of Brothers, Arrested Development, Mad Men, or Desperate Housewives.
1: That's a, that's actually a pretty good list.
2: It it is a pretty good list. Yeah, the the TV list was not too not too difficult to make.
1: I mean, comedy, The Office, is is absolutely holds up kind of changed the half hour sitcom format and i I love i love that but it's hard to say the office versus something like sopranos or the wire and so for me and i know you were a big lost fan although i'm kind of curious to see if you are going to stick with that given hindsight and how terrible it ended but i am going to say the wire because i think that's Mm -hmm. kind of a masterpiece uh although i think that i would also need to have the office as the comedy
2: sidecar I, I would love to go a show like The Wire or Band of Brothers, but I didn't watch those in the 2000s. I don't think I watched The Wire and Band of Brothers until like the 2010s. But I am going to go Lost simply because the first two seasons of Lost, I don't think there was, had been anything like it on TV before. And just the intrigue and the mystery of the show, and you really had no idea where the show was going. Uh, now, in in all honesty, I stopped watching after like maybe the fourth season. I never, I never watched the end of it. I don't know what happened. I heard it didn't end well, but I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it that decade, Jeff, just because those first two seasons were very, very cool. Mm. All right, music: Jay Z, Outcast, Beyonce, The White Stripes, Radiohead, Coldplay, or I know one of your favorites, Nickelback. I, <laughs> you know.
1: Your jokes are just getting better and better as we continue this series. Uh, outcast uh, not even a question for me. I don't think anything really comes particularly close, and to me, that still holds up for me. Listen to a lot of Outcasts and still listen to a lot of Outcasts, so I am going to stick with them.
2: Yeah, I am going to agree with you on this one. We were in college at the time. I think Outcast dropped two big albums. Yep. And uh, if if I hear Outcast, I think of college, and I so that's what I am sure is giving Outcast our choice for this decade so good choice there jeff movies are not bad okay not not the 90s but they're not bad we have the dark knight which is the batman movie that had heath ledger as the joker in it sure the lord of the rings trilogy avatar the entire harry potter franchise (laughs) the departed 300 or the notebook now jeff i know you would usually choose the notebook here but uh, go what what is your choice, Jeff? The Notebook is a is a crazy solid movie,
1: and I it makes me cry. So I, it is a good movie. I will admit to seeing it multiple times, but that's not my choice. And I, I think you have to go Lord of the Rings. And I know that's obviously where you're going. And you can go into this a little further, but it is really a masterpiece of how they were able to pull it off. And really kind of launches in more money to fund things like Game of Thrones in in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think you have to go Lord of the Rings here.
2: You have to go Lord of the Rings because you look at what they tried to do with movies like that afterwards and they did a Hobbit trilogy and it was terrible. Terrible. It's amazing how good the Lord of the Rings are considering this is 20 years ago and this was the first time anyone had ever done anything like this and it's a great it's a great great set of movies. And they really haven't been able to capture that sense. Game of Thrones is the only thing that has come close to Lord of the Rings. And if, if if Game of Thrones ends after, like, Season 5, it's probably above Lord of the Rings. But I think the end maybe puts it closer to Lord of the Rings, maybe not so far ahead of it. I don't know. What, what's your opinion, Jeff? Who, which is better, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones?
1: Well, for me, it's it's Game of Thrones because it's there's more gray characters and they're more complex characters. And Lord of the Rings, it's very much good and evil there's not a lot of people that you know have really interesting character arcs in my opinion uh and so to me the the series is more interesting because it's it has complex characters that grow and change over time and it's also like what 80 hours of programming (laughs) versus it's so much more
2: programming yeah yeah i'm sure we're gonna cut this part but (laughs) i'm pretty proud i got the i got jeff to talk about uh lord of the rings and game of thrones in a bears podcast. <laughs> <So> <laughs> my goals are complete yeah excellent is that it for pop culture that is it for pop culture jeff so not as not at it's not the 90s but not too shabby of a decade so
1: it doesn't have a good bench but the peaks are strong
2: absolutely great way to put it
1: so let's recap the decade here so in the nfl we actually talked about it last time the texans joined the nfl in 2002 Moves the league to 32 teams. They split it into two conferences of 16 with four divisions of four teams each. It's what it is today. That's it. That's the only movement. We'll move on. The Bears are 81 and 79 overall in this decade, which honestly kind of surprised me when I look back at it because I would have thought it was a little better. But, you know, the early part of the decade besides the 2001 season, really a lot of of
2: seasons with some subpar years. Even after the Super Bowl win, there's, a lot of seven and nines, and nines and nine and sevens and things like that so I think when you think of this decade you assume we'll won a lot more games but in actuality we really didn't
1: yeah so the Bears win the division three times they win the NFC central title for the last time the last NFC central division in 2001 they win that with a 13 and 3 record maybe the most fun team I've ever cheered for I really love that 2001 team they end up losing in their first round in the playoffs, divisional round to the Eagles, 33-19 to after Jim Miller goes down with a shoulder injury on, I think, somewhat of a late hit. I think a lot of Bears fans feel the same way. In 2005, they win the NFC North. They ultimately lose in what I'm just going to call the Steve Smith game against the Panthers. Steve Smith put up 12 catches, 218 yards, and two touchdowns. They might just show that game. When he is up for Hall of Fame induction, because it was a ridiculously amazing game, and unfortunately the Bears were on the receiving end of it. And then of Steve course Steve
2: Smith and and Donovan McNabb, uh, back to the 2001 game. I'm not sure I've seen more two more dominating performances than those guys. I mean McNabb was breaking tackles, just unbelievable against us in 2001, and then couldn't stop Steve Smith.
1: Might have been yeah. might have been their peak games, honestly. 2006, great year, ends in a Super Bowl loss to the Colts, 29-17. I am sure that we will talk about that a lot, but I wanted to ask you up front, those three playoff losses ending those three seasons, how would mm-hmm. you rank those losses in, in terms of how bad they hurt you on an emotional scale? I don't mean... Like importance to the team. Obviously, losing the Super Bowl is the biggest deal, but like emotionally, ending the the ride of that particular season. How would you rank those one to three of ones that hurt you the most to the one that hurt you the least?
2: Three, uh, it would be the two thousand five team because this was a team on the rise, and so you you felt bad. It felt bad to lose in the first round. It felt bad to lose to the Panthers, who I didn't think were that good anyway. Right. But you knew better days, at least hopefully, were ahead, and so that one. Didn't hurt too bad. 2001, I'm putting at number two because that was the first, you know, you and I had never seen a team win 13 games and a team that was that fun and, and a team that seemed almost destined in some way to like go on and, and do more than what we did. So that one stung because that was the first real bit of success that we had tasted and to have it end that way just didn't feel good. And the, the most painful one was the Super Bowl because there was a lot of plays in that game that should have gone differently and I I still really feel like we were in a good position to win that game and we let it slip away and I think at, at the time it was still pretty, I think it was pretty well known at the time about the Super Bowl hangover and so I think as a Bears fan that, that got in my head right away that oh wow, these teams that lose the Super Bowl, they tend not to make it back and then a lot of them tend to fall off the face of the earth the following years and so you know, I, I think we all said as Bears fans, like, ah, oh, we'll get back there next year or the year after, but I know there was a lot of doubt in my mind just because, you know, we we had some issues on that team and those issues never really got resolved. And so that was really painful because uh, you and I watched that game together and I just I wanted to win that game so bad and it, it so it hurt a lot, Jeff, and we lost.
1: Yeah, I think that's the right order and I I I, I just wanted to kinda of see where you were at because I think emotionally sometimes we interpret these things a little differently than it would be just from like a logical standpoint but i think that kind of also holds up both from the logical standpoint as well because losing a super bowl obviously is is something that that is really hard (laughs) on on a fan obviously super hard on a player but very hard on a fan but that, that 2001 team was so much fun but it almost you knew that it was kind of fluky I, I, it just didn't. We, we the, yeah, you know the two walk off games and things like that. We'll get to that in a minute, of course, but it, it felt a little fluky. But you know, it <laughs> it was so much fun, and you wanted so the ride fun. to continue. You know, it, it you were at home against the Eagles, and even though you know you're thirteen and three and you're at home, you're still like, yeah, but this team's just kind of plucky, you know. And it's like there was no favorite feel to being thirteen and three and being at home in the playoffs. It still felt underdog that team because maybe it was just so many years of being bad and then all of a sudden here's this random spike up to 13 wins but anyway that that team that team still just makes me smile
2: absolutely and and i i don't even know if 2006 overall was as fun as that 2001 year just because there was expectations for 2006 and so i think when you get those expectations you're not always able to enjoy as much because well, you know, this is what we're supposed to do. Right. Two thousand one, we're coming off a, a two thousand year where we are awful, and so the, the fact that we won thirteen games in two thousand one, it was just like it's like you're playing with house money. This was great. Like the, it was just a fun ride. Yeah. And probably it was probably the funnest overall ride uh, I've had in Bears fandom.
1: I really think it is. I think because it's just because of the
2: expectations.
1: The results were so much greater than the expectations. I think that's really what it comes down to. So mm-hmm. agreed. All right, so Bears coaches in this decade. So Dick Duron is hired in 1999. He lasts five seasons with the Bears, really that 2001 year, obviously being the, the successful year, every other year not so good. He finished his coaching career with the Bears 35 and 45. Then Lovie Smith is hired in 2004, opening press conference. You know, hey, our goal is number one, beat Green Bay. Like that comes in. I mean, he is winning the hearts and minds of Chicago Bears fans. So he brings back a new defensive scheme that's been successful across the league. Coaches for quite a long time, but love the last six years of this decade. So during this decade, he's 52 and 44, and he wins the division twice. Eventually, ends his tenure in Chicago with a record of 81 and 63. That is the third most wins for a head coach in franchise history, behind only George Hallis and Mike Dicka.
2: So, do you think, Jeff, that's where he stands? I mean, he's got to be number three, right, uh, after Ditka and Hollis. I mean, in terms of, you know, the the coaching Mount Rushmore, if you will, I know that's a bad analogy, but coaching Rush, Mount Rushmore for the Chicago Bears, uh, he, he's he's he could be the best coach we're going to see for a while since Mike Ditka. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he is. I, I can't, you know, nobody in the 70s or, you know, it's hard to really say anybody that got a short window like the – luke johnsos you know for a couple years stepping in for Hallis when he was gone during world war ii or something like that that you know that that doesn't really count i mean that they, they definitely have a they have a championship to their credit but that's really tough to count that so i yeah i think he is i think it's pretty clear i mean he's clearly better than say dave Wanstat or something like that so i think that he's comfortably in the number three spot i don't think anybody's breathing down his neck for that and i think matt nagy has a chance Clearly, to to make his own case, and we'll get to what we think Matt Nagy can do here in a couple episodes. But I I think that Lovey's clearly the number three best head coach in this in this team's history. Dicka's winning percentage is much much better than Lovey's, mm-hmm. and he, you know he did it for longer, has more victories, but he's actually not that far behind. He's not that far behind Dicka, and if you think about it, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this next episode. We talk about it here. It, you know his firing sucked. That was a that was a bad firing, and if he sticks around a little longer, you know, Lovey Smith could pa- could have passed Mike Dick all time wins for the as head coach for the Chicago Bears within a couple more years.
2: Well, he gets fired after a ten and six season, right? Right, and they
1: missed the playoffs because of some tiebreakers, and it was a, it was a crappy firing. I you know we'll we can talk about that more next next episode okay. when it happens. But yeah, no, I think he's comfortably. Comfortably the third best. So, a question for you, though. Like, let's talk about just early Lovey, like Lovey in this decade. Do you, you know, he could never figure out the offensive side of things, but he was clearly great for the defense, and he really got the most out of a lot of that defensive personnel. Do you think he was like the right hire for this team?
2: He was definitely the right hire. He was an interesting hire in that Jaron was a defensive guy and kind of a mild-mannered guy, right? So, typically, what franchises want to do is they want to get the opposite and so maybe the hire that would have made fit that change is kind of a a brash offensive minded type guy but they didn't go that route they went lovey who is is always very controlled on the sideline and defensive guy and yeah he he was the right guy at the right time the only problem is is they should have been hiring offensive coordinators for him because whoever he brought in was just the wrong idea and you could see it at the time like I know this isn't necessarily this decade but you know the the marts and the tice and things like that it's just it was the wrong idea stuck with Ron Turner for a long time in this decade which you know Ron Turner was fine but you know, the NFL is always evolving and I think you got to have coordinators that are willing to evolve with it and I just I don't think love you ever had that
1: yeah exactly and I, I think that what's interesting is bringing in a relatively newer defense, and then using personnel that really made it pop, and and building a you know a new iteration of that defense in Chicago was a lot of fun to see. Uh, it's more fun when Chicago is the the innovator, but it's still fine when you're bringing in someone who innovated somewhere else, you um, mm-hmm. know, or a disciple of someone who innovated somewhere else to To run the team and, and that and that's what happened. Lovey had a lot of success as a D coordinator, and, and I think he had a lot of success in Chicago running his scheme with with this personnel. But so this episode, we're we're focusing primarily on you know obviously that fun 2001 season, but really this build up to the Super Bowl run. And so even though the Cutler trade happens before the 2009 season, we're going to table the Cutler era for the next episode. <laughs> And so we're really we're really focusing on the players that were a part of this squad during that uh, 2006 Super Bowl run. So the key players from this decade that we that we decided. And again, it's getting really hard to just pare it down to eight, but first of all 90s we are carrying over nothing <laughs> there is nothing good that came <laughs> out of the 90s that we talked about last time that's on this 2000s roster that we need to worry about not worried about it. i mean big cat williams is there for the 2001 season but this is not there's no carryover to those uh, to the 2006 super bowl we're also i just want to note up the top we're not talking about adewale Agulier, um as one of our eight people and we're not talking about one of our personal favorites alex brown as one of our eight people we love alex brown This is just a good decade with a lot of good players. Tough to pare it down to eight. We did the best we could. One of the ways that we do that is by not talking about a specific quarterback that counts against one of our eight. We're going to just run down the quarterback history before we get into the key players. Yeah, I know, but we we got to do it. (laughs) So strap in. Here you go. So quarterbacks uh, start off the decade with the debacle that is Cade McNown. He's absolute garbage. It's a it's a first round draft pick in nineteen ninety nine. He gets the majority of starts in two thousand, but he is so bad that he does not record another start in the NFL after that season. Which is like some kind of terrible for a first round draft pick that he doesn't get another start in the NFL after his second season.
2: It's it's amazing. A couple things that is amazing about this. Number one, we somehow got someone to trade for him. Like someone saw Caden McNown and said hey, we can make that work. Miami. Number two. Yeah, Miami. It was, what, it was like a fourth rounder even? Uh, I don't
1: even know. That, that's a good question. I, I don't have that on, in front of me.
2: But n- number two, he was so, not. I mean, yeah, he was bad. But apparently he was so unprofessional that I think it was the 2000 season that players on the team basically threatened to boycott a game if <laughs> McNown started. Like oh my God. I've never I've never heard of anything remotely close to that in the NFL. Like no. your team is going to not play if they start this guy because apparently McNown was just didn't put any effort in. Like didn't know the plays. Just and I felt bad for Jerron because that's the hand he was dealt right away. Because Mc, Mc, McNown was what like the ninth pick in the 99 draft. And so hey, this is the future. Here you here you go, Jerron. And uh, it's it's amazing. Jerron lasted as long as he did when. McNown was thrusted upon him for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, it's rough. So 2001 and 2002, primary starter was the oft-injured Jim Miller. I think you and I both love Jimbo Miller. Uh, love him. Again, delivered one of those all-time fun seasons for us. Stats aren't great, uh, but I think he brought a level of leadership to the quarterback position that really seemed to rally the troops. This is random, map, but maybe it's just the Bears, but at the time I thought Jim Miller was like a – aging veteran that had been around forever and it's kind of true but in 2001 do you know how old he was
2: uh, he looked about 40 but i'm gonna guess he was what like 27
1: right so he's 30 years old in 2001 but that's exactly where my mind was uh, he he looked like he was like 37 you <laughs> yeah. know like and, and so uh, i'm not saying he looks old now but he just maybe he's had maybe it's the beard but could, he could be he's like just, beard like, has that face where it looked like he was just the same age for like 30 years career backup kind of guy got his shot did you know did enough to win a lot of games in 2001 absolutely no magic left in that hat in 2002 fell off the the wheels fell off of his career 2003 I don't know if you look this stuff up Matt do you know who the primary passer was in 2003 the leading passer
2: well I don't know if he was leading but I know we got slash Cordell Stewart but I, I I don't and he didn't have a good run but I assume he was the team leader in passing.
1: So Cordell Stewart 2003 ends up leading the team in passing with nine appearances seven starts. He has 1,400 yards and seven touchdowns to 12 interceptions.
2: (laughs) Oh no. So I can do with this stuff Jeff is just laugh at it.
1: So obviously it gets better the next year. No. You know who the leading passer was in 2004 Matt? Uh, And well
2: in 2004 Rex gets hurt right away and then you have the debacle of Jonathan Quinn medicine woman and you got oh my god you got Craig Krenzel in there who should have been getting his doctorate but instead he's playing quarterback for us oh is it I oh got it's Hutchinson isn't it yeah Chad Hutchinson I, I can't remember for Chad that's it Chad former, Hutchinson
1: former pitcher former pitcher Chad Hutchinson makes five starts finishes with 900 yards four touchdowns to three interceptions so that's a positive ratio uh but in those five starts that was enough to lead the team uh better leave that there 2005 we get rookie kyle orton the neckbeard out of purdue makes 15 starts he only throws for a little over 1800 yards nine touchdowns to 13 interceptions so not a great year um at all but again that was a pretty good year in terms of record and then 2006
0: rex is Here our quarterback
1: Starts off on a hot streak, and Matt, I, you know, we've talked about it plenty, but early in 2006, there was an MVP buzz for Rex Grossman.
2: People forget that. He he, he put up such crazy numbers in the, the first month against you know, the Lions, Buffalo was in there, Green Bay, but I, in preparation for this, I went back and I watched some of those games or at least the highlights of them, and even on a lot of his touchdown throws, it's it's either the guy is wide open, and, and Rex to Rex credit. He threw a nice deep ball. He could hit guys on the deep ball but there's a lot of throws where it's kind of like a 50-50 ball and you know, Berrien comes down with it or does, you know, and so you're looking back on this and it's like Hmm, the warning signs were there. Right. Maybe Rex isn't all he was cracked up to be that first month. But he, he he had MVP buzz that first month. No one can deny it.
1: So he finishes the year over 3,000 yards, 23 touchdowns to 20 interceptions. So, that, And that's the only year that Rex Grossman leads the team in passing. 2007, it's Brian Greasy yeah. that leads the team in passing. He finishes with 1,800 yards, 10 touchdowns to 12 interceptions. So again, he's underwater there. He has six starts. Uh, Grossman had seven starts that year, and he only finished with 1,400 yards, four touchdowns to seven interceptions in those seven starts. So that's not a good year. So then 2008, the return of the neckbeard, Kyle Orton, basically starts the entire year. He's got 15 starts under his belt, 2,900 yards, 18 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. Probably the best year up to to that point of the decade uh, in terms of just pure numbers. Obviously, again, we're going to talk about Cutler in the next episode at length, but after the season, Orton is part of the trade that uh, sends him and some first-round draft picks to Denver. Orton, the next year in Denver, puts up really good numbers. 3,800 yards, uh, 21 touchdowns, 12 interceptions in 2009, and then in just 13 starts on a pretty bad def- Denver defense, in 2010, 3,600 yards, 20 touchdowns, nine interceptions.
2: With a full season, easily would have cleared 4,000 yards there. So, I just I just saw an article or something where Erlacher came out and made some sort of statement about Kyle Orton was one of those favorite quarterbacks he played with. Yeah, he which yeah doesn't bode well for the Bears yeah. <laughs> during this time. But well, no, no think, offense to Kyle Orton, fellow Iowan. Yeah, fellow Iowan from El Gona? Altoona, Altoona. Um, yeah, Southeast Polk. We actually played against oh, so him in the uh, okay. state basketball tournament. Fun fact. Oh,
1: I don't. Did he have the neck beard at the time?
2: I don't remember I'm sure he could chug Jack Daniels back then too. I'm sure. <laughs> Again,
1: 2009, color takes over, and we'll, we'll get into that next time. But over the decade, Miller is the only guy to lead the team in passing for consecutive seasons, and. <laughs> Over that 10-year stretch, you have eight different quarterbacks that led the team in passing. So you have a 1999 first-rounder flame-out in this decade. You've got a 2003 first-rounder crash-and-burn in this decade. And by the end of the decade, you use two first-round picks to acquire Jay Cutler. So I texted this to you beforehand about yes. me doing the prep work for this quarterback rundown. And you said somehow it's as bad as the 90s. And I said, I think it's worse because there's at least Harbaugh provided some stability in the front part of the 90s. So my question to you is, do you agree? Which decade is worse for Bears quarterbacks?
2: Well, the, the more I think about it, the 2000s have to be worse simply for the investment in McNown and Rex Grossman. I find it hard to believe that there weren't red flags about Cade McNown. And if the Bears maybe would have done their due diligence, they would have avoided that. With, with Rex, I, I texted you this earlier in the week. Rex's sophomore year at Florida was amazing. He finished second in the Heisman Trophy. He put up crazy stats. His junior year, the year before he leaves, it just takes a nosedive. Like he, he is nowhere near the quarterback he was the year before. And so, to me, that should have also thrown up some red flags. Like, okay, why did this guy regress so bad his junior year? And maybe, in hindsight, it should have been more clear that this shouldn't be a first-round pick. And so when you invest that type of draft capital into those two guys and uh, McNown is just a disaster, uh, Rex is a disaster in a different way, I, I think it's got to be the 2000s. Like you said, in the 90s, you have Harbaugh for a time, you also have Kramer for a time, and I know that's nothing to write home about, but at least you have that stability in the 90s. And so, yeah, I, I think it's becoming more and more clear the 2000s were somehow worse for quarterbacks.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing. So I think this this episode, just kind of looking at the clock, we're we're probably going to be in the 80s length territory. So we're going to pause right here, just so that I can fit in a little bit of a commercial break if we need it, and uh, we'll be right back.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience.
1: All right, Matt, let's talk about the key eight players of this decade. And I don't think we can start anywhere else but Brian Urlacher. And you get to talk about Brian Urlacher. So the floor is yours.
2: I remember when we drafted him, I didn't know how to say his name. I doubt anyone knew how to say his name. I never heard of the guy. Right. And I remember reading about him right after we drafted him, and it's, well, he's kind of a safety, but he can also play linebacker. And, Jeff, his last year in college – he has 10 punt returns for a 15-yard average. <laughs> he has seven catches for six touchdowns. Right. And I i don't think I knew that at the time, but I didn't know what to make of him. I'm just like, the Bears are really bad at this point. And you're just kind of like, well, okay. And so I fully admit I, was, I had no feeling about this pick at the time just because I didn't know anything about him. And, you know, right away – They put him in an outside linebacker to start the year, and then I think Barry Minter gets hurt, and he's the starting middle linebacker. And I think if you're on the team at the time, it was pretty clear that he was going to be special. Kruitz had a quote about, you know, on outside zone runs, he had no trouble ever getting to the middle linebacker. And and Olin Kruitz is one of our best centers ever, and so that statement means a lot. But he said, I can, you know, like the first mini camp or the first day of training camp, I could never get to him on the outside zone run. Like he would always beat me. He was just so freakishly fast. And once Erlacher becomes the starting middle linebacker, it just clicks. And that he was the only, the only reason to watch that team in 2000. 100. And and so it, it became this huge, uh, exciting thing that hey, hey, this guy could be the to step in for Mike Singletary you stepped in for all the other great middle linebackers like this is awesome man I think at that position it's it's really tough to see someone be amazing at middle linebacker because okay if someone's a pass rusher okay they're getting sacks if someone's a quarterback they're throwing touchdowns if someone's a receiver or running back and so forth it's real easy to see what, like, how they're making an impact but I think at the middle linebacker position it's tougher but when you watched him he was unbelievable. I would never seen someone that fast right. play the linebacker position. The two thousand one season, entering that year, he's already seen as one of the best players in the league. He established himself that fat, uh, that quickly in the league, and his his two thousand one season. I think the only reason he doesn't win defensive MVP is because of Michael Strahan, who set the who broke the sack record. But he has. A, I know you and I love approximate value his approximate value in 2001 jeff any guesses
1: oh 19
2: 21 oh wow it's unbelievable and he had that you know so many plays that year i my favorite one is the ot game where he's gonna just he's just gonna murder terrell owens mm-hmm. and owens bobbles the ball and it goes right to mike brown or uh when against the falcons Vic rolls out and fumbles and Erlacher just picks it up and he Looks like a wide receiver just running down the sideline, like laughing at the Falcons' sideline. It was great. <laughs> and then probably one of my favorite moments, too, just because it was so cool is against the Redskins when they do the fake field goal and Brad Maynard throws it to Urlacher in the end zone. And then yeah. I think Urlacher yeah. let one of the linemen spike it. It was just like – and that's why that 2001 team was so fun. It was just and, – and that's how Urlacher played the game. Like, he just had fun. He had fun. You know, you look at Butkus – who looked like he always wanted to murder someone, and Singletary had those eyes, and Urlacher just—he's always, always had a smile on his face, like he was always laughing, talking with his teammates, talking trash to other quarterbacks. Just unbelievable player. And so, you and I have always talked about this. He's—he's he's the first, he's our first great player that we got to watch his entire career. Right. And Lovey Smith comes to town, and and that really changes what he's expected to do. In that he plays the middle in that Tampa Two scheme and Lovey realizes, hey, this guy can cover tight ends and wide receivers down the middle of the field, and it just made that Tampa Two go probably above and beyond, or at least at the level of what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of the late nineties, early two thousands can do. And and just to watch him, you know, run with a tight end or a wide receiver down the field and tip the ball like he was incredible. Uh he he wins defensive player of the year in 2005 and he's just as good in, in 2006 and I know we're going to talk more about games later but you got games like the the Cardinals game I'm, we'll talk about it later but just games like that where he was must-see TV hmm. him and, and a lot of his teammates just you when you watch those Bears games you were focused on the defense Right. Defense and special teams, and then uh, here comes the offense. I just hope they don't throw a pick, <laughs> stuff like that. And and you know, as the decade goes on, he gets older, and you can tell he he loses a lot of his speed, but his game ages like a fine wine. He he relies on his intelligence. He he never gets enough credit for how smart he was and how much studying he did and his instincts on the football field. So later in his career, I, I remember. I think it's a Titans game, like in oh, 2011 or 2012, somewhere in there. And he picks the ball off, and he was just so slow trying yeah. to run it back. And But, <laughs> yeah. but he, he, he could still put it. He was so smart, he could put himself in a position to get that interception. But definitely lost a step towards the end of his career, but he was still really, really effective. And the type of teammate that his teammates would do anything for him, and in his Hall of Fame speech... He said, I just want to be remembered as a great teammate. That's it. And his teammates, I've never heard of anyone, anyone that played with him say a bad word about him. And he's, he's our Dick Butkus. He's our Walter Payton. He's our Gail Sayers. He's our Sid Luckman, whoever, like that's our guy. And I, I have, you know, a decent amount of Bears friends, you know, both uh, young and old and. You know, I asked him, I asked a lot of these guys. I'm like, is he the best bear since Peyton? And to a man, they all said, yeah, he's he's the best bear since Walter Peyton. And if, if you pluck him in today's game, I he's just as effective, if not more. I think he could have been an all pro tight end. I think he could have played some, you know, the hybrid, strong safety position. And sometimes those guys come down and play middle linebacker. I think he could have been a pass rusher. He was this freak athlete who was also really smart. And had great instincts to play football. Just an amazing football player, and I hope I get to see someone else like him that we draft, and he stays a bear the whole time. And it 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 ended poorly, but with uh, Trestman coming in and and all that, and so that was a a weird way to end it. But part of me is also glad that he never played for anyone else because Jeff, this is our guy. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. I'm glad that you know I'm selfishly glad that he only played for the Bears and didn't have one of those one or two years somewhere else but I've I've always viewed Urlacher's career as uh, three cycles. The first cycle is under Jerron and Greg Blosh where mm-hmm. he's playing behind these two mammoth defensive tackles uh, Ted Washington, Keith Trailer, and the idea for him to play middle linebacker behind these giant defensive tackles was that he could read and react and make, make plays sideline to sideline And he was incredible at that, and he makes two first-team All-Pros. So he establishes himself as a great defensive player during that time. Lovey comes in, brings in the Tampa 2. They run a lot of Tampa 2. They run a lot of other stuff. But he's the perfect linebacker, middle linebacker, for the Tampa 2. And Mm -hmm. he makes two first-team All-Pros in the Tampa 2. And he's Defensive Player of the Year. During one of those years, they get to the Super Bowl in another year. After cycle two, he establishes himself that this guy is going to make the Hall of Fame. Then he gets hurt, misses a year, comes back, and he's you know he's aging. He's a little slower. He's playing a little bit different, but he's relying on that instinct that you talked about. He's still a very good player, makes a couple of Pro Bowls late in his career, and that is what establishes him as a first ballot Hall of Famer and someone who is you know, it, you at least have to have the conversation about is it Dick Buckus or is it Brian Erlacher who's the best middle linebacker of all time, uh, of, at least for, for Bears history and maybe for the NFL history. That's how that's how the cycles, I think, worked for me and i just i think it's really impressive that he was able to do the two first email pros for two different schemes i think again that's what i think makes him a yeah. hall of famer but i think that last part of his career like you said like doesn't get enough credit for that last part of his career showed just how smart of a player he was because he was able to make plays by all of his experience and all of his studying and so uh, to me he's great he's a great leader obviously a team captain for a very long time my guy and this is my first guy is mike brown and this was this is one of my favorite players of all time same draft as Urlacher next pick free safety out of Nebraska and when I think of Mike Brown the first guy I think of is Brian Urlacher and I think there's only one other player that I have that like strong of an association with and that's Lance Briggs for me Mike Brown and Brian Urlacher are tied at the hip because they came in together and then they started to show out and when the Bears started to at least have some flashes of good. It was these, because of these two guys leading the defense. Mike Brown's a very quiet guy, which I think kind of hurt him for getting some postseason honors thrown his way. But, you know, that, that is what it is. This is one of those, unfortunately, this is one of those stories about a player that has an injury-shortened career, had a lot of really good things about the early part of his career that made you think that he could have been an all-timer. Started every game his first four seasons, but again, wheels started coming off with a few different injuries. Honestly, I went back to view his stats, and his numbers actually aren't anything that impressive. (laughs) 17 interceptions in a Bears uniform, but I I think it's safe to say that he picked his spots well. (laughs) He's almost certainly going to be remembered for his two back-to-back walk-off pick sixes in the Mm -hmm. 2001 season against San Francisco and Cleveland the most crazy fun random like never will happen again in the history of football if football's played a thousand years i don't think that there's going to be a situation where you get uh, somewhat the same player making a play like that in back-to-back weeks after uh, comebacks it just honestly it doesn't make any sense still that that happened incredible spot to happen it was a lot of fun uh, we, we certainly enjoyed that, watching that in our dorm room. I can't believe we still watched the rest of that Cleveland game. Uh, I think we probably should have turned it off and gone and done something else with our life, but we kept watching and were, was rewarded with one of the all-time great comebacks and, and cappers that Mike Brown provided.
2: Well, I think the only reason that we probably did finish that Cleveland game was because of the San Fran game the week before. And so you just kind of, you'll sense what had happened the week before were two touchdowns at the end and then the overtime it just kind of made you want to wait this one out but i mean it the bears tie the bears throw a touchdown i believe the booker with like 40 seconds left and then well okay then they got to get the onside and so it's just you're right it, nothing like that will ever happen again i would stake all my money on that so he's first-team All-Pro in 2001, largely,
1: I think, because of those two plays and how much they got replayed. Has a really nice year in 2005. Looked like, hey, you know, this guy's, again, he's going to be he's gonna be the guy. Made the Pro Bowl in that year. Missed a few games, but again, well, it looked like, you know, he's going to be fine. He's going to be part of that big 2006 run. And then he gets hurt in that Cardinals game, the the Crownum game, that we're certainly going to keep making references to it, <laughs> throughout this episode and that end of the year for them i think they really missed it i've always felt like that was the difference for the bears that was one injury that really really hurt them you know eventually you know, ending in that super bowl loss one again pro football reference i don't think i've used this part of pro football references page but i think it's important to use this for this and another player coming up they have a, a really slick player comparison chart on everybody's individual page they look at players with a similar career profile and Mm -hmm. if you consider just like three seasons or four seasons all the way through like you know your overall career and so i think it's a a good way to kind of look at guys that had really high peaks but got injured and so you know who are the who is this player most like with a with a short career you know can you compare them and if you look at mike brown's page some night some names pop off if you look at just like the top four seasons you see names like Brian Dawkins, Leroy Butler, Sean Taylor. So he's in a really good company for d- other safeties of that era and that time that, you know, hey, this career profile is really similar. So if he can stay healthy, he could be on a trajectory to something that's either borderline Hall of Fame career or, or maybe he could even go over the top. So this is a really good player. But again, uh, injuries really derailed it. I don't know. Like, What else you want to say about Mike Brown?
2: Uh. It was so frustrating when he started getting hurt because you it, it felt well, especially the two thousand six year where we want to we want to get back to the playoffs. We want to try and get back to the Super Bowl. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he gets hurt the first game of the year, correct? Against the Chargers
1: in two thousand six or 2006? Oh
2: sorry I'm sorry in two thousand seven he gets hurt the first game of the year.
1: Yeah, very early. Yep.
2: And so it's just like that was such a total gut punch right away, and. I know I had a sinking feeling in my sinking feeling in my stomach after that game. Like, this year is is not going to be what we thought it's going to be, and and he, he never really got back. It seemed like hundred percent healthy, and then he didn't end it. Who did he end his career with? Chiefs ends his career with the Chiefs, and it's just like I'm not really sure who to compare him to in Bears history. Maybe you can help me out with that. But it's such a feeling of this could have been so much, and you know you, you think about those Bears teams. And The players you think about are Briggs, Erlacher, Peanut, and you got to throw Mike Brown and and also someone we're going to talk about later, Tommy Harrison. There, but you know Harrison Brown both just uh, the injury bug bit those guys a lot. Oh, I think the the easiest comparison is
1: Tommy Harris, who we'll get to in a little bit. But the highs aren't as high, uh, but like like a Harlan Hill who started off started off his career like on a super high notes. And they got yeah. hurt, came back, and you know wasn't quite the player, and then had a shortened career. Again, I don't think Mike Brown's you know peaks were as high or even as many peaks as Harlan Hills, but uh, that that's maybe the guy that comes to mind as a guy that really got robbed of a great career. Well, one guy that put together an incredible career is my next guy and that's charles tillman so comes to the bears in the 2003 draft really nice draft for the bears after the first round charles tillman comes to the bears in the second round of the 2003 draft and i would say that this guy this guy is the most universally beloved bear player of the modern era maybe i'm wrong but i i think that everybody loves peanut tillman I don't think he got nearly the amount of respect that he deserved during his playing career, particularly the early part of his playing career, the decade that we're talking about now. I would say that the media that votes for postseason awards like just did not understand just how good he was. And I, I honestly, I can't really understand why. I think it's unforgivable that his name wasn't put in the great cornerback conversation early. He doesn't make his first Pro Bowl until 2011. And in 2012, he makes the Pro Bowl again and makes first-team All-Pro. One of the only Bears corners to be a first-team All-Pro. Kyle Fuller did that recently. But again, this is uncharted territory. The Bears don't have a great cornerback history. I guess you would have to go back to, like, George McAfee and Red Grange or something to kind of go back to great corners. But honestly, he was doing great things his entire career. And was a great guy. So named Walter Payton Man of the Year in 2013. Obviously a very important award for Chicago Bears and Chicago Bears fans. When Windy City Gridiron when I was part of the crew that voted on the top 100 players, he came in at 18th, and that put him above oh, wow. some Hall of Famers. You might ask, is that too high? Maybe, but I think it just speaks to how beloved he is in Bears circles because he got enough votes to be that high. Like, people that follow the Bears, you know, they were voting on him in that second round of 10 to put him in, and, and I think that really speaks volumes to the, the person he is and the player he is. But let's let's just talk about stats. I mean, not, not just that he's a great guy. Let's talk about how amazing he was in the field because uh, that's, I think, why he's so beloved. But in a Bears uniform, 36 interceptions, 8 returned for touchdowns, 44 forced fumbles. 12 fumble recoveries, and another, and one of those was returned for a touchdown. So his forty-four forced fumbles are tied for sixth in NFL history. Robert Mathis has 52. He's in first place. Then it's Julius Peppers, John, John Abraham, Dwight Freeney, Jason Taylor, Chris Dolman. What do those guys have in common?
2: All all pass rushers. Uh-huh.
1: He's ahead of Bruce Smith. Derek Thomas, Ricky Jackson, <laughs> Richard Dent. And, oh, 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 we get to a safety, Brian Dawkins. A safety, not a corner. Uh, we get to Brian Dawkins. He's the first player in the secondary. He has 36. So Tillman has eight more than Hall of Fame safety Brian Dawkins. Charles Woodson, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. He'll be in the, the class next year. Charles Woodson, who played forever. He played corner and safety. He's got 33. Char- and Charles Woodson, to me, he's the best corner since Deion Sanders. And and so again, you've got he's 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 so much higher than these other players. And it, you have to go down for just a pure cornerback, someone who never played safety, a pure cornerback. You have to go all the way down to Dre Bly, who has twenty forced fumbles.
2: Wow, that's unreal. So again, is, this is one of those.
1: This is uh, to me, this is one of those those stats like you you, you kept you've brought up in the past babe ruth hitting 60 home runs the next guy hitting 20 or whatever the stat is yeah this is something that's so incredible for a corner to do to be a guy that takes away the ball the peanut punch is something that you hear every week when a defensive player punches for the ball whether or not he's even successful sometimes they'll make the comment oh so-and-so trying for the peanut punch there he (laughs) brought in something that's it completely like his it's nicknamed after him his nickname is peanut and peanut punch it's it's his move and it's named every single week you hear it every single week not just bears games every single week you say oh you've got that peanut punch in there which i just find that's amazing but how about the other thing that those uh those eight career pick sixes if i were to ask you who has the most career pick sixes who would you say it is
2: in NFL history? NFL history. Ooh. Um, wow, that's what an amazing question. Deion Sanders pops in my head, but I don't think it's him. Um, Someone like maybe Aeneas Williams or maybe, a, oh gosh, Ed Reed maybe?
1: Okay. So that's what I thought might come to mind was Dion Sanders. And I'm glad you, you said Aeneas Williams. They both have one more than Peanuts. They have nine each. Peanut has eight. The the career leaders, Rod Woodson, who has twelve. Oh, okay. That makes okay? sense. Yeah. But he's also, you know, he played corner and safety. Charles and safety, Charles yeah. Woodson has eleven, right? So there's some other guys. Taleb has ten. I mean, there's you know, there's some other really good players. But again, like I think you think like, well, Sanders Deion Sanders probably had like fifty of them, the way that he's kind of talked about, right? No, he had nine. Again, that's great. That's a great number. But he had nine of them. It's not It's basically the same amount (laughs) that Peanut Tillman had. And so just when you put the stats up against other players, he's incredible. He's right there with the Hall of Famers. But it's going to be very interesting to see how the Hall of Fame committee deals with Charles Tillman here coming up very soon when he he gets eligible. Because he does not have the postseason honors that a lot of these other guys did. And that's usually very important for them to make the, the Hall of Fame case. But I think that his career numbers and his career impact and just it was a mistake on the part of media for not understanding how good this guy was early, uh, that this guy needs to be in the consideration for the Hall of Fame. That's how good I think Charles
2: Tillman is. Jeff, do you think the cover two has to do with maybe his lack of recognition that he got since the stereotype cover two cornerback doesn't play a lot of man-to-man coverage and uh maybe as an ask to do is you know shut down someone like a, like a bump and run cornerback would Jeff. I don't
1: know, it might be, but Ronde Barber, you know, did fine in terms of postseason honors and he was in yeah. that similar system. So I, I just I think that he got maybe is he overshadowed. He's not a very talkative guy. You know, a lot of these corners and wide receivers, you know, they make a lot of headlines because of the things that they say. And that's not something that Tillman's gonna do. Tillman's gonna let his actions on the on the field speak for themselves. And I, th- I think a lot of the quieter guys in NFL history suffer. You know, obviously there's exceptions. You know, Barry Sanders, obviously his greatness, you know, could not be denied, and he was a very quiet guy. But a lot of times you see some of these guys that are that are quieter that aren't seeking the attention, and they don't get it. And I think that's unfortunate. A guy like Richard Sherman, who he definitely is a talker, and he's someone who's going to trash talk on the field, and he's someone who's going to get in front of the camera. And I think that has done He's a, not only a great player, but he's also done very well for himself by being entertaining. And that has led a lot of people to be like, well, obviously, he's a pro Bowl corner. Obviously, he's going to get my all pro vote. And I think Tillman just didn't have that element to his to his part of the game, if, if you will.
2: God's making me depressed to think that he, you know, he didn't get the recognition that he clearly deserved.
1: Well, we did it again, guys. We went a little long on this episode. We broke it into two. This is the end of the first part. Go ahead and switch over to part two, and we'll pick up with Lance Briggs on the other side. Thanks.